Welcome to the Get Sober Resilient Podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. The conversation today is with Andrew Pritchett, who is the Chief Information Officer over at Grant Thornton. It's always a good sign when you're 20 minutes into an engaging conversation and haven't even hit record for the actual interview. Andrew truly has the squiggly line career from sheet metal work, 10-pin bowling coach, into an overnight computer operator gig, and from there he was off to the races with promotion after promotion leading to CIO roles. Andrew has written for the Get Cyber Resilient website on positive cybersecurity culture, including how to lead change with Cotter's eight-step process as the framework. We talked through that in more detail, including each step in the process and also Andrew's principles for fostering cultural change. Those principles are be patient, be balanced, be a coach, and be transparent. Over to the conversation. Welcome to the Get So Resilient podcast. I'm Garo Hara, and today we're joined by Andrew Pritchett, who's the Chief Information Officer at Grant Thornton. How are you going today, Andrew? Uh, pretty good. Just uh, looking forward to having a chat. The first thing we kind of always ask the guests is just to tell us how they got to where they are today. So obviously you're the Chief Information Officer for Grant Thornton, but um, you know, you've, you've obviously had other roles along the way, but it'd be great to just get a sense of your journey to, to land at where you are today. Yeah, I think um, it's actually had a pretty non-traditional journey i would say like uh i uh sort of started as a factory worker like doing sheep okay uh, yeah. and and roofing and guttering and and uh i got sacked from that job and then um i worked in a bowling alley uh okay. and while i was working in a bowling alley like you know handing out shoes and and you know putting uh perfume in shoes and powder and you know i wasn't a bowler i just luckily got a job through the paper um i realized that uh I probably needed to do something maybe that might be a bit better or a bit more opportunity for income. To be now that's a stable income job, so I went to uh, TAFE with the the sole the sole uh, goal to get a job in technology that would be you know consistent or you know, something that I wouldn't get sacked from perhaps. Yeah. Um, and uh, I went to TAFE. I didn't finish my course. About three quarters of the way through the course. Uh, I got an opportunity to get a job at Diners Club, which was a credit card back in the day. And uh, it was an overnight computer operator. A computer operator is like a service desk person, but you you basically take printouts off printers and put them in pigeonholes. And you might, you know, the technical side of it might be you go you go to a mainframe screen and you type 14, 15, 10. And you might do that seven or eight times a night. And that was uh, my first seven years um, doing that. And then... What happened is there was a sort of towards Y2K, there was a big thing in the IT industry where everyone was really scared about the Y2K bug. Yeah. And uh, there was a big, big, a big, uh, I was a night shift person. So I just worked nights um, and I was there in the morning and the everyone just didn't really think of me as being part of the team. I was just like this outsider that was sort of like there at night, you know, like, you know, something from a TV show. And um, they came in and the IT guys came in. There's about 40 IT guys and they came in and said, oh, we need you to stay around. We're going to have a meeting. We're going to go on strike. I go, okay, cool. I've been here for 12 hours. It's, you know, 8 o'clock on a Monday morning. <laughs> um, I'm exhausted. But, yeah, sure. So I'm sitting there and then the, the CIO at the time came up and said, where is everyone, Andrew? What are you still doing? He's just, like genuinely concerned for my well-being. And I said, oh, I think they're actually in a meeting. So he goes into a meeting and they, they were, they were, they had a big fight in the meeting, all 40 people in the CIO. Um, and on the spot, he sacked the network, uh, the network team. He sacked them on the spot. Uh, that was it. They're gone. So we had two Novell guys. Uh, Novell was like before Windows or, you know. And um, he came over to me and said, you're pretty smart. You're now my network guy. And um, so that was how I got my first technical role. And I was sink or swim. And I did that. Um, for a few years and then I just sort of kept getting promotions and promotions and to a point where I had some really good bosses and got a relief CIO job while my boss went away and then um, I leveraged that to get a full-time CIO job in another firm um, when he came back and from then I've worked in a couple of different uh, professional services firms, yeah, law firms, accounting firms as, at that level. So, yep. yeah, it's a, probably a non-traditional. I did go back though and do my MBA. So... I felt I, that was definitely something that stopped me from getting a management job because I didn't have a degree. Um, so I went back and started my MBA and it took a long time. But um, yeah, that, that definitely was something that I think was beneficial for me getting the, cred, the credibility to get a CIO role. Yeah, very cool. Um, and as a matter of interest, like how good a bowler are you? I know you were, you were kind of working behind the desk, but uh, did you get a chance to, to sort of hit the pins? Yeah, I think um, 
once I got over 200, I, uh, I, um, I was actually a coach. So basically oh, wow. I couldn't bowl, <laughs> but I actually knew the technique to coach others. So like they would actually have like coaching programs and I'd have to actually go coach people. And like I'd be coaching people that were way better than me. Like, but they didn't know that because they just assumed because I worked there, um, there was something that was actually really quite out of my comfort zone. So I felt like an absolute hustler. So, um, yeah. Yeah, interesting that we're coaching and uh, not, yeah, we won't get too far off track here, but I often think that um, you don't need to be really good at the thing necessarily. You just need to be good at coaching and, and helping people spot like what they need to get better at sometimes, right? Yeah, I, I think that's actually true. And it's probably holds true to like work now. Yeah. Like, I'm, you know, I don't know jack about you know software development actually coding certain languages or whatever that's my guys but i can help them with thinking about how to structure something or you know things to consider outside of that that you know is sort of more generic and that's how i think you know i know we're talking about bowling coaching but that was very similar like i got shown how to coach not shown how to bowl Hmm. and then they thought i was actually okay at it and they just kept giving me and i kept getting work doing this coaching thing which was um it didn't. It didn't earn me any money because I was just the shoe guy, but it earned the, it earned the bowling alley some money because people would pay whatever per hour to get coached. Yeah. So this is interesting to me because, like, I suspect you probably had a, a very kind of a seminal experience there that is going to lead to what the topic of conversation is today, which is around culture. But it feels like what you just said there: learning to coach, not learning how to bowl. That's the distinction, you know, uh, when it comes to, you see people all the time really, really good at a role and then they get promoted into management because they're good at the role. And then it turns out they're actually not very good at the management side of things because no one's, you know, that's a very different, it's a very different skill set. Yeah, there's a, there's a model for that. It's called the Peters Principle. Um, and it's a, it's a model that says you get promoted to your level of incompetence. Um, and uh, a few times I'm pretty sure I've been promoted to my level of incompetence um, so I've been pretty lucky but yeah definitely uh, used to have a few friends and we used to joke about that that's uh, you know your techos would get promoted and you'd have to sort of almost uh, adjust your whole personality adjust your whole style to to survive and I think in our previous in our pre-amble conversation I was joking how I feel like I'm an imposter I feel like I'm acting quite a lot I think that comes down to it. I actually, deep down, I'm a nerd. Or deep down, I'm a technical person. Um, and I have to work really hard for the empathy side. I, I'm better at it now. If you keep going, I think it builds. But the empathy side and the and the, the soft skills is something that um, I was really challenged with for quite a long time. Some people that reported to me over the times would probably, even now, probably think I'm the worst manager in the world. So. But aware enough to at least you know consider the possibility because it's amazing how many people in leadership roles yeah that wouldn't even <laughs> wouldn't necessarily cross their minds. Um, so look, I mean, you actually were very kind and, and recently wrote an article for the Get Cyber Resilient site, so the kind of sister website to the podcast, and it was um, the field guide to building a positive cyber security culture. And um, yeah, I suppose the the big question. To start with, why why does a positive cybersecurity culture even matter in an organization? That might seem like a really simple, there's an obvious answer, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your take on that. Well, I actually got a story from today. Like, so uh, just like two hours ago, we um we're, today's our lockout day for cyber for um if you haven't done your cyber trading today, today's our lockout day. So we just locked out 130 people um from their accounts, and um I had a really nice bloke. <laughs> You're, you're laughing. This is this. I, I am. Um, <laughs> um, I had a really nice bloke come up. I haven't seen him for two years because of COVID. Whatever. He's a pretty pretty smart guy. He's a senior guy. He's on big bucks. He's um, a top performer. You know, can't say enough nice things about him. But he came up and he's got his laptop in his hand. He goes, "Something's wrong with the laptop." And I go, "Did you do your training?" And he goes, "What training?" And like, he's just not reading his emails. And um, you know, we we sorted him out. And then like, you know that same person three years ago was done with a phishing attack. Yeah, okay. So, and like we had, we, we didn't lose data, but we, we know the person gained entry, um, but we know what they did because we use Darktrace so we can actually mm-hmm. see what they were doing. However, um, you know, just a good example, I think, like that's just training. So when, when I talk about culture, like it's got to be taken seriously from the top level down. He's a senior guy and, you know, he's, a, as I said, top performer. Um, just you know it's, it's just not in his it's not even on his uh peripheral vision it's just like blinkers 
down. I've just got to get my work done. I've got to focus on what the client wants. But without that like cybersecurity culture, you don't have a holistic approach of like the part of your job is to protect your client's data, um, you know, protect our data. Um, and, you know, he, he's doing he's done his training now, so he's all good. But yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a yeah. I think it's just so many aspects of this this point that it's just just a fundamental. We have a board that holds me accountable for a bunch of metrics. And it's not necessarily there's no cultural metrics, but mm. by by establish by establishing that they'll come to you and they'll come to you with some problems or some opportunities or challenges, however you want to put it, as opposed to finding a workaround. So you've got to create this thing that they understand and they have enough understanding that they they kind of appreciate what they may not know. And therefore you get to a situation where you kind of have a chance. Without that. I'd suggest, um, you know, I, I deal with other other firms and other companies and, you know, the, the cyber guy is, yeah, everything's a no. Yeah. Um, and kind of, they just work around it. And, you know, I, often those guys or that person's days are numbered, guy, girl, you know, whoever it is. Um, yeah, so I think that as a CISO, you have to establish that culture and you have to actually define what you're trying to what sort of culture you're trying to do and then set up your principles to align with that. Um, so that's like, okay, I'm not a no guy. I'm a no but guy or a maybe guy or let me come back to you guy or let me work out what you're trying to achieve guy and really be known for that. And then you kind of can actually work with the business or work with the people. And then they start to understand and you also have to explain and coach like we just talked about, like explaining what the ramifications are or using stories from other places to really build that um that that awareness that the the desire that there is a problem and that they can actually see it and it's really tangible for them and then typically if you're in a good firm like i'm very lucky you kind of can get build on that over a period of time yeah absolutely and i I think you, you sort of you've touched on some very i think important points around um you know, culture, which which points to engagement rather than just understanding that maybe you shouldn't do the bad thing, but actually, like to your point, if I'm if I'm kind of getting you right, you've got people who actually don't just understand that they shouldn't, but they're engaged enough to not want to because they kind of understand the wider ramifications of what it could mean. Yeah, I think, and I think that that's almost like if you can get to a point where you're not seen as the enemy. Mm. And people res- respect you, um, and then people have a desire, and they sort of ha- know enough that they know that it's really a big problem. Like, it's not just we're not just mucking around. You know, there's hackers there. There's, there's you know, there's people who want your data or client or the client's data, um, or the, or money. You know, there's you know different types of money. Um, if you can get them to appreciate the ramifications, and they sort of take it seriously, it becomes like a, a burning platform or a a reason to change or a reason to actually engage. So you've got to like be pretty honest, pretty transparent. It's actually, I think it's a tightrope. Like it's like you have to sort of, you know, we locked out accounts today. They, the guy that came in said, what if I was just walking into a client meeting, Andrew? You can't lock my account out. I said, well, we sent you an email. We did this. We did this. We did this. You've had this much at some point. And, we, and he goes, well, who's made this decision? I said, well, I've got the board endorsement to do this. And he's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's pretty serious. Okay, cool. So, you know, and then, but at the same time, like straight away we unlocked his account. Yep. We helped him, made sure there was no problems, made sure that he was, we didn't impact him, you know, and he's, he's the first person that if he comes to us, you know, during lockdown, he, he called us, he's got like some kids at home. Um, they were starting to work from home and he said, you know, we don't have enough screens at home. Is there anything you can do? So we just shipped him a couple of screens. So, like, he knows that if he needs our help, he can come to us about anything that's stupid, like, you know, anything really. But at the same time, he also knows that we don't do things, um, you know, but he's really challenged to who told you you could do this. You know, it's like, so even though that he's still challenged, you know, later he'll remember that it was only a couple of years ago that he was fished, so... Yeah, it's 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 crazy to forget that stuff when it does happen. And you know, look, I definitely take your point around uh, walking the you know to use your words, walking that tightrope, um, because like this stuff is so serious. But I think you're like I, I fully agree that um, that sort of positive reinforcement, building the human relationships, getting the culture going, like that's critical. And you can't sort of 
well, you can't really scold people because they tend to kind of shut down, you know, react wrong, you know, react in the wrong ways. Yeah, I think for, that's a great, the great, great, if I tried to scold that guy, um, like he's like pretty senior in our firm. Like he probably has the power to get me sacked. Um, and that's not good. You know, that's not the, the other thing that we take back is I think it's a, a pretty key thing. And I can shout out to um, a guy's name is Philip Scorgi. We actually just got the best interest of the firm. So if you can actually show them, demonstrate that the reasons why you've got the best interest in the firm, um, which means you really got to know your detail, which is where mm-hmm. it really does help to be technical. If you can articulate what, why what you've done is in the best interest of the firm, which is what I really tried to do today, um, they get it because their company, they get it and they can't really argue with that. If you're just like going, no, I'm not going to, but I'm not going to tell you why and I don't mm-hmm. care and you're, here's a, you're going to wrap across the knuckles and I'm reporting you. It doesn't help. But if you can actually articulate, I'm doing this because, A, the board wants us to do it because if we actually don't do the training and then someone is fished and then someone gets in as well as taking data, you know, we're in the paper. We're losing our cyber insurance. We're, we're losing clients. You know, we're, some of our clients are banks. So, we, you know, we try every dimension we can to make sure that we're as compliant as possible with, you know, cultural dimensions, training dimensions, um, you know, security, obviously, <laughs> not even like we're just talking about the soft side of it. The yep. hard side of it as well is having all the right tools, all the right technologies in, in place to actually protect them. So, you know, to some extent, they, um, you know, they can actually, you know, be safe without worrying, but there is an element that they have to still be aware. I, I'm, I'm rambling it because I, I just laugh because we actually – we did a board report just recently and in the board report on one of the slides it actually when we're doing our phishing simulations we're seeing a slight increase of of click-throughs by our people yeah. two things have happened um obviously we use mindcast for our email um spam filtering and filtering and it's got it's it's improved and got really good so they very rarely get a fish attack and we also use targeted threat protection, which is a is a is a tool that allows you to um, uh, kind of block uh, block URLs, not block URLs, but basically when that person click, it re- rewrites the URL, so when they come in, you click on it, and it actually goes and, and gets checked in real time. And if someone else has you know flagged that, you know it's it's pretty good. It takes you know a few minutes after that might hit, you actually that that link doesn't work anymore. Um, so we've got to do all these things that we make it so the user doesn't have to think about things. So mm-hmm. when we attack them, we're actually able to trick them. So our click ratio is high and we do some education and things like that. So it's not like the worst thing in the world, but the click's actually probably higher, but um, yeah, we're getting less. I don't know how to explain it. We're actually doing so much for the user that they don't have to worry about it as much in our firm. Yep. But at the same time, we have to keep training them because that one that does get through is going to be the one that kills it. It only takes one that the right attack getting through is going to be the one that, you know, cripples our business. Yeah. And that, that is the way, and we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later, actually, but the, you know, like the sustaining the culture, um, the cybersecurity culture, because I think that's, that's often where the way the wheels fall off the cart. Um, but coming back to the, to your article, um, one of the things that you know I found personally kind of really interesting was um, you kind of introduced us to Dr. John Cotter's eight-step process for leading change, and I hadn't yeah. seen that before, um, but it made a lot of sense to me. I'm a big fan of frameworks, and you know, five steps to this, ten steps to that. I, I love, I'm one of those people that kind of thinks in that way. Um, but it'd be you know we'll we'll get to I suppose the individual steps. It'd be good to understand from your perspective why. Why use a framework first of all, and then if if you can comment maybe on specifically um, why you like Cutter's approach? Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm actually just bringing it up because, like, I don't know all the stages in my head, so I'm just bringing up my post on that. But um, the framework's really important because, like, senior managers or senior execs in a business, a lot of them have done MBAs. A lot of them have actually gone to like you know in our in our group, a lot of them have gone to Harvard for like leadership courses and you know change management's a really hot topic mm. um you know and they're saying you know how do we get organizational change how do we get like system adoptation adoption um so the model is actually gives you a tangible thing to talk to mm. so you can actually take the model in and then you can like you know draw a table do a graph do a presentation do something and they actually a it's not me saying but I, I, it's not the nerdy it guy telling them it's like john cotter 
or, or he's not. I'm thinking of John Connor there. It's <laughs> from um, Terminator. It's Connor. He's like you know he's done. He's developed that you know I think in the '60s originally, and like it went through the '70s. So all the CEOs went through it in the '70s. So it's you know it's an MBA change management model module. Um, you know method. So that anyone that's done any leadership course will have probably come across it. And um, what that means is instead of me actually having to sort of make a framework up or, which, you know, I don't mind making my own framework up, but it just gives it that that meat on the bone and yep. that confidence that you're actually thinking things through. There's a few of them that I use that really help you um, articulate the story or get to the detail at multiple levels to hit multiple stakeholders. So some of my stakeholders that I have to deal with, that they, they won't read anything. They'll read eight points on that thing and they'll go, right, he's using cotters. He must be right. Sweet, I'm done. Sign off. Another one will get me in a room and they will ask me questions for 90 minutes and want to know every single piece of information I've got. Drill me, drill me, drill me to make sure I know everything and I've considered everything. Um, you know, and, it, and not a no, it's not a no, it's not a trust issue. It's a, um, you know, they, they've got to be comfortable. They feel exposed if they don't have all that data, especially at the board and the exec level. So we've got to like, manage all those messages for every level of stakeholder interest, especially in a business like our own. And I, I suspect mm. most businesses now at the board or at the exec level. Um, and this, this approach just gives them confidence that I've considered it methodically. And mm. then it also gives me a framework where I can drill down into the detail. Um, and then, you know, I start up really high, you know, just the eight steps, you know, embed the change. Okay. In this instance, what does that mean? Okay, and then I can actually say, we're going to embed the change by doing this. And then they go, okay, and, and you can use it as a like a, a drill-down approach to tell a story. And then, yeah, and, you know, great for communications back into your team as well. Like you said, you hadn't come across that particular model before, which you kind of, but it resonated with you straight away because it's mm. pretty well thought out. It's actually, and it, it's real world, it's a real world resonation as well. Yeah, there's a couple of things that come to me as you as you talk through that. Like it's the signal of uh, thoughtfulness and, and kind of aligning to an existing framework is, I would say, powerful for getting leadership buy-in. Sort of, you know, paraphrasing, I guess, what you've just said. But you know, the work has already been done. Why recreate the wheel if somebody's got a perfectly good framework that you know has been shown and, and has can, been battle tested? Like, of course, it, it sort of makes sense as you talk through it to, to kind of go for that. Would you be able to? Um, very kind of briefly, maybe just given given sort of time, but like it'd be great to kind of run through those steps of the of cultural change. Give, yeah, cultural change, given it was kind of a, a sort of key part of the article you wrote. Yeah, so I mean, I've actually, as I said, I actually don't have it in my head, but I used to when I was doing my MBA, I had to memorize these um these models. And there's like there's a couple of places on the net you can go to that actually has them all. But this one in particular it says it starts with a creative sense of urgency, and I think this is really important. I mean, this is actually. I think the reason why a lot of things fail, especially IT projects or change projects, it says it says create a sense of urgency, but I think it's actually what, how I describe it is creating a burning platform. And the burning platform that I'm trying to say is that you're creating um, you, you're creating this platform that uh, the person or the person you're explaining to is standing on the platform, but you're getting them to understand that it's on fire and there's a problem, and they've got to leap off that platform. Um, to make a change and that 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 leap that they're going to make. So if you can actually get them to understand that there's a sense of urgency or I like to use burning platform, um, then straight away they're going to actually almost be on your side to change, especially if you go back and you, you can demonstrate this is in the best interest of the firm. So if you think about, like I, I read on the article on LinkedIn or other places, you know, a real challenge to get funding for yep. like cybersecurity stuff. Yep. I, I've, you know, touch wood, um, I've never really had a challenge with that because I've been able to articulate that whole best interest of the firm. And, you know, if I show the best interest of the firm, especially if you're dealing with the board and the exec, and all of a sudden they're accountable for making the decision to do something dodgy or to do not do something that is imperative, in my experience, unless the firm or the company is under immense financial strain, um, which in that case they might actually defer the cost or they might defer something now, i've got an i've got an example of that um that you know that will actually be on board um so the example of that is we deferred and i spoke to the vendor and i told them i've got approval but we can't pay for 12 months and we actually established a three-year contract that was back-ended 
So we still, and then when I went back to the board and said, hey, we don't have to pay anything this year and these are three-year contract, blah, 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 we were able to go ahead with that particular initiative. Um, so I think that, you know, so if you actually have that transparency, if you can actually create that sense of urgency, the burning platform. The next one is build a guiding coalition. And that's like, you've got to have your team on side. A lot of the time in IT, especially technical team, there's a lot of argument about what tech to use or who to use it or if you use a third-party vendor or if you don't or if you do it ourselves. But if you can actually get the people to buy in that, you know, the sense of urgency and the, the burning platform, then you actually get them to actually agree with that we actually need to do this as a burning platform. Some of the some of the tech stuff just dissipates. And then if you can actually get the people to understand the the, the burning platform, like a senior exec, um, then they, they sponsor you. Uh, a trick that my boss currently sort of taught me, and I, I don't know who's going to listen to this, so if you're anyone that we actually do this to, can you? please stop listening. But what we'll do is if we put a proposal through to the board or if we put a proposal, um, not any proposal, but a significant proposal through, what we'll do is we'll actually separate and each one of us will take one of the decision makers and say there's six or seven decision makers, maybe more sometimes, and we'll actually go talk to them one-on-one before the meeting to discuss the decision and we'll explain to them one-on-one this is why we're doing it. And we'll put it in their words, how they want to be told or mm. the, how they want to learn. We'll give them an opportunity to ask. And often what that's meant is often when we go to get the decision made, um, that coalition has been established with the people who are in the room. They may not, they won't know that we've talked to everyone in the room and we'll get a unanimous vote. And like people come out and like go, how did you get, the, these guys don't agree on anything. And we'll go, well, yeah, well, that, that's because we put forward a good business case. But it's not really because we put a good business case for. It's because we actually were able to explain to them why we need to do it and get them on side, and therefore we had a coalition in the meeting that we actually were able to leverage. Anyway, I really it's, like it's, doing that. That's actually quite fun. It, it sounds like an episode of The West Wing, you know, where they're trying to get agreement on a, you know, a thing and, and they go off and they, they work uh, the, the various stakeholders and, and get, get things through. Yep. Yeah, I think I think that's that's probably a good example, but it's not that dissimilar because we're a partner. Like my last few companies have been partnerships. We have 160 yep. partners in our firm. Any given time, any of those 160 people could be on the exec. So you know, at times I don't know the people very well because it's really hard to know in deep, you know, depth. 160 people, and I don't know. There's some research on how many people you can know really well. It's definitely not 160. Um, so that, that's that, that's kind of it. And I think getting those two up front is a really key one. And we've got some other ones like form a strategic vision and initiative. So that's really just creating your, you know, once you have the, the burning platform and the coalition and coming up with your plan, um, vol- get volunteer army. Like we do that in our mm-hmm. team by getting people involved. It, it doesn't mean you don't pay them. <laughs> it just means they're volunteering their time at work to actually help you. And that, that goes back to that they understand the, burning platform yeah so if you get that first couple of steps right everything just flows the one where um you know the one that sticks out to me you know removing barriers which is pretty obvious like basically just making sure that you're thinking things through analytically and you know coming up with solutions around those uh create short-term wins giving some quick wins and and you know Mm. A great example, we implemented, I'm not being nice to Mimecast, I know, but we implemented the Mimecast training software and we we're on another product and the product that we were previous on was like a 20-minute PowerPoint type solution that asked really questions that we didn't even always agree with the answers. Now we've gone to the Mimecast solution, it's like three-minute funny video. So that straight away gave them back 17 minutes. So it's a quick win in their mind. So that's that's a good example of a quick win. Another quick win might be um, when we respond to RFPs. Um, for clients that we now take something that would always say no on that becomes a yes. So they'll put up with a bit of pain if they know that that knows now a yes in front of the client's eyes. Yep. Um, the, the, the one that where, you know, the sustained acceleration institute change, the institute change is where I think it drops off. Um, and that's going back to the principles of how you, you know, you want to operate your team. You have to, like this morning, I could have easily sort of said, Oh, okay, I'm really sorry. We'll never do this again. And that's, you know, to some extent, that that's how I felt. I felt quite mm. ill from being confronted. But at the same time, like, I, I just went through and went back and explained the burning platform again. So you, you kind of use this model to actually reinforce it. And that means your communications is always structured, aligned. Um, I've found in my career, I, I try not to bullshit. Um, mm. I don't know if you're allowed to swear on this podcast. But I try not to like, I try to be very um, transparent um, yep. and I try not to like pull the wool over anyone's eyes. 
I, I found I found when people do that, um, it sort of unravels, maybe not straight away, but in one year, two years, um, you know, at some point it unravels. So I think bringing them along as trusted people and, and being quite transparent and, you know, saying the truth is, but the, the where it gets you, I guess, is if, if you're going to say the truth, you've kind of got to know it's the truth. I'm also not, I'm okay to say I don't know. I'll let me get back to you, but it helps. I think if you have technical people and you've got people you can trust in your team that you can, you know, leverage. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I wouldn't mind kind of yeah, just staying on the the kind of the, where where we are at the moment, which is the kind of sustain acceleration part, and and you know the the struggle that I think many organizations would have where that, you know, I think what can happen sometimes is we're going to start a, you know, security awareness or behavior change type of program and you know, everyone gets excited. It's all new. And then, you know, at some point the kind of novelty will wear off, right? That that just happens in most change management. At some point there's the bit where the excitement goes away and actually now we have to do the, the stuff that just requires kind of discipline and grit to kind of get it done. Um, any kind of pro tips or like any suggestions for the, like the listeners as they tr- like push through that kind of trough that's event- you know inevitably is going to arrive? Yeah, um, I mean I've got a few examples. I think I, I think that I think when I start when I started here, everyone, no one's listening to this podcast yet. No one listens here. Hopefully, Nobody, when I first yeah. started, <laughs> when I first started, um, everyone in the firm had admin rights to their own computer. Um, so they could install whatever software they wanted. Um, you know, it was just, you know, you can just imagine 1,400 people with admin rights um, and no standard SOE. People could just install, you know, and like we have, you know, systems. Um, so we took that off um, and that was actually something that was really painful. Mm. Um, it was a, That was like done in my first maybe few weeks. Um, this is a really important job for me. So I got a significant amount of heat. If you can imagine people coming, hey, I want to install this software. No, you can't. Yep. Hang on a sec. So I think if you're going to do it, you've got to give them an alternative. So we did it, but we bent over backwards to make sure they weren't impacted. So we're packaging in System Center. We were like finding alternatives. So you've got to like, you've got to be on the ball. If we'd have just like gone, like it's like a marathon. If you just like, mm. sure, we could have done that first week sprint and then like a week later, you know, we we wouldn't have done it. So a week later, we would have backed it out. So what happened with that is how you sustain it. Like that's a, I think that's a really, so how we sustained it is we told stories at the right level to show how this was going to be the best interest of the firm. So then people can connect emotionally with the change and get behind it. Yep. Make sure, this is a perfect example, we removed barriers. So when people come and said, no, no, I need admin access, so I need to be able to do this. Okay, why do you need it? We'd actually get our best people on it to solve the person's problem. And often that meant that they were in a better position when they were doing it themselves because it was automated, scripted, they changed their laptop, it didn't have to worry about anything. Um, so really, it's, it's almost like service delivery. So there's that aspect of it. The second aspect where I think acceleration or, you know, maintaining the pace is really good. Uh, we had a guy here, his name was Gavin Townsend, and we kind of couldn't afford to do uh, a methodology for monitoring our cyber maturity. Um, we could afford it, but we felt that it was better to invest that money into technology to keep our firm safe rather than technology to report, um, if that makes sense. So Gavin actually made his own methodology. Um, it was based on NIST, based on ISO, and we created a scoring framework. Um, and we used that scoring framework over the past eight years to present quarterly to our board and to our exec about how we're going. So putting numbers to things over time mm. and showing those incremental improvements in those numbers is, I don't know why, but it seems to be human nature to be very competitive. And to see improvement over time um, just really connects with people. And then they kind of, oh, how are you going to get to four? So our numbers are between one and six. And like we did it like we, we were at like a three and now we're nearly at a four. So we're not only talking a small incremental change over time, but we've got a framework behind that that actually we honour and we're very honest to that allows us to actually then go, okay, we're sitting at a four now because we... We just re- re- recently implemented a CASB solution, Netscope, yep. and that meant we moved from 3.9 to 4. 
<laughs> you know, so four has been our five-year goal. So then everyone's like really happy. Oh, we're finally at four. What's your new goal, Andrew? I'm like, you know, we're, we're just trying to get to four. <laughs> like, I don't want it. We're not going to get to five because we, we, you know, we're going to have to invest a lot of money. We, we, we will, we'll review it and change it or whatever. But I think that having that, you know, and we use BitSite, um, yeah, BitSite as well. I don't know whether you're familiar with BitSite. For uh, Thread Intel, am I? Yeah, it's it's so it's for external monitoring. So it gives you a bit site yep. score. So it uses some um, honey pots and a few other things to yep. work out how your security posture is. And it uses, you know, let, it's, let's call it an AI, but it's an algorithm and it gives you a score. So our board and exec want to know my bit site score every month. And so we put that up and up up front and we worked really hard to maintain it. Yep. Um, we've had a hit a couple of times when we've had, we once had a, a client event in in our Perth office, and someone brought a rogue laptop in, and somehow managed to use our guest Wi-Fi, and that they, they, they were infected and doing some bad stuff. And we took a sixty point. So our score, the bit sites between one and nine hundred, a good score is in the seven hundreds, and we took mm-hmm. a you know a forty point hit based on someone coming in using our guest Wi-Fi. So and that takes six months to get back. So you know. It, it's pretty it's pretty smart and that the reason why we knew we had a problem in Perth was because of that of BitSight. We it, it didn't detect because I was on a guest Wi-Fi which we treat as untrusted, but it's still coming out of our network. So they still apportion that to us. So that BitSight score, so having those um metrics that you can actually measure really gives a real tangible sort of mm. flavor for the people to go, okay, you know. Tell me how you're going. Well, here's some metrics. Here we can tell you this is what we're doing. You can always show them if you've had an attack or if you had an attack. But over time, you know, over years, showing those consistent metrics, like with a bit side score, with a you know a framework score from NIST or something, is a really good way of doing it. Yeah. So sort of green arrows going up, or you know a, a trend line that's kind of you know going uh, open to the right, and that that kind of keeps yeah, people. Or even a, a red arrow going down is not bad if it's the truth. Because yeah. when we did have the guest Wi-Fi incident, we were able to show that and they were like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Mm. And that gave all of the people who were involved in that communications. It wasn't a penalty. It wasn't anything bad. Mm. We, we didn't have an exposure or anything. But what it meant is they realized it actually was almost educating them. And they're like, okay, what are we going to do about this guest Wi-Fi? So then they're almost asking you, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, We're talking about like, what are you going to do with your spiff records? Like what the? How is this a conversation at like a board level asking us what we're going to do with, you know, different types of DNS records? So I think that 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 is really when you explain why we took a hit, then they go, yeah. okay, well we need to fix that. So just it also I think really establishes a connection to understand the complexity of it all, because it's so like I mean you would know I don't have to the the complexity of keeping it all together like with patching with you know certificates. Um, with third-party vendors, with third-party suppliers, mm. with um, you know security products, um, you know, and attackers and users that are trying to work around systems, it's 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 very complex. So yeah, it, it is. I've been I've been sort of running a, a campaign in the background that we all go back to abacuses and notepads, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be better. Yeah, just to just, yeah, I mean, puts us all out of jobs, but maybe that's the downside of it. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll get there eventually. Um, I wanted to um, it's maybe pivot, not pivoted, but you know, move move on to the principles that you kind of outlined in your article as well, because um, that was sort of the really what felt like the second part of of the article. Um, and you started out with being patient, or you know, be patient as you put it. Um, and one of the one of the, the sort of timeframes you mentioned in the article was that. You know, it was, it was, well, you said eight years and then you said five years, but, you know, we're not talking five months. It's a reasonable amount of time to get to the point where you feel like, uh, you know, change has happened and culture is starting to get bedded in. Um, but, yeah, it'd be great to, to kind of hear you talk through that, like that, that, like being patient, it seems like such a, it's two words, but it has such an impact to expectations, I suppose. Yeah, I, I laugh because, like, we had a sidebar chat, I think, on one of the on an email when we we're preparing for this this chat, and like you were like, yeah, uh, yeah uh, like don't really have eight years, Andrew, to trying to to kind of uh, get this all sorted out. I'm just really interested in what the hell you're talking about. Um, I think you got to bring the people along for the journey, and like, it's not going to be like one thing that you know. Well, the worst thing 
the worst thing that can happen is you're not patient. And mm. normally when you're not patient, it's because you've just been having a, you just had a massive cyber attack. That's when the firm's not patient. So that's like I've, I've known companies that have used the word pivot, like you've just like, you know, underinvested in cyber or haven't really taken it seriously, maybe not even underinvested in terms of dollars. It's just not been that important. So they're spending the money, haven't done it right, had heaps of holes, uh, you know, made heaps of concessions or whatever it is, you know. Well, you know, sometimes not even that, sometimes just bad luck, mm. you know, really bad luck that's, you know, they just wrong place, wrong time, patch gone wrong, something stupid. Um, and then they get attacked and basically their board goes, well, right, we're going to sack everyone and, you know, it's this person's fault. And, I mean, that that approach is um, not necessarily, that's, but that's what I sort of mean by not. So being patient, what I mean by that is like, yeah, we we identified what we needed to do over a period of time. I mean, oh, I don't want to bear my soul. The, the first time we did a penetration test under my watch, um, our penetration testers got in very quickly. Um, shout out to the missing link. Um, they they got in very quickly. It was actually very bad. No, it wasn't very bad. It was like a really good good thing that they got in, and then we were able to fix that. But um, you know that. So then we get the roadmap and then we can't, we're not, it's going to be not possible for me to go to the board and get two things. I'm not going to get all the money at once. Yep. So it's got to be incremental. Um, and I'm also not going to be able to sustain the change required all at once. It's got to be incremental, not just from a, um, not just from a, you know, people, you know, side of things. It's actually a technical change. You can't just dump systems in, dump systems in, you know, just do that because you've got to make sure that things architecturally align. You've got to worry about logs. You've got to worry about, you know, even, you know, Caspi with Netscope, like that's actually something that's got to be quite sensitive that you put it into the right balance so you don't break your, your client's experience or user's experience. They can still do their work. So, you know, we started off with, okay, what's the most, you know, what these are the recommendations from the third-party penetration testers. Okay, so this is what we'll do first. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to actually get penetration tested again in six months, make sure we've rectified that and get a new list. And it's like a cycle. Like, so it's, you know, so you keep going, you keep building your roadmap, keep looking at what's next. It's And it's never ending. So I think when I say be patient, like you've got to start off somewhere. You, the, when I see people try to do everything, um, sometimes they don't last. They like, they've got unrealistic requests. So they end up, okay, this guy's a lunatic. I'm not going to do any of it because he wants to do it all. So you've got to go, okay, you've got to be realistic. You've got to be pragmatic and you, you do have to be patient. You have to like, okay, these are the most important things for me to fix this, this time around. Um, and these, the next one, these are the next ones. And incrementally, you just get better, better, better and tighter, tighter, tighter. Um, what I see sometimes and, you know, it's unfortunate. I see some really smart people get like CIO roles, um, you know, really smart, really good people. And the firm doesn't understand they've got someone who's really good and really smart and they're really pushing and they'll go, okay, this guy's, this guy, you know, he wants to do this and it's a stupid, it's a waste of money. You know, they get rid of them. So I think yeah. it goes back to that best interest of the firm. You, you kind of have to take them along for the journey and you have to just do it incrementally um for multiple reasons change budget technical change so yeah i hope, I yeah. hope that sort of explains what i was trying it, to get at it, it definitely does and it actually echoes um phil zongo was on it's, it feels like a while ago now maybe a year year and a half ago um, but he talked about that idea of kind of realistic outcomes and how important that was um completely completely kind of echoing what you've just said there um that one of the mistakes you see made is that people promise too much, fail to deliver, breaks trust, and then, you know, potentially they're they're out of a job, worst case, but, you know, best case, people just, they're not really going to trust them going forward. Well, they can't get more investment. They can't yep. do the yep. next thing. That You know, they might not lose their job, but they're stuck. Um, yep. And, they're, you know, they've, they've got to have a leadership change around them. You know, I've yep. seen that as well, where they get stuck. And then, like, a new CEO comes in and the guy's a superstar again, you know? Yeah. So it's a real, it's a real... um Real, real balance. That tightrope analogy is actually what I think is a really good one. Yeah, maybe, maybe we might go kind of off piece a little bit on this question, but um, you did mention kind of you know Caesar's kind of getting getting the can because of a breach or whatever. And I've been reading kind of analyst research around 
how much more valuable a security leader is when they've actually lived and breathed their way through a, a breach, you know, rather than the, you know, the interviewing sort of questions being, oh, like, have you been, have you been a CISO in an organization where there's been a breach and that's seen as a bad thing, when actually it should be seen as a good thing, you know, if we accept the premise that, and, and you kind of said it, you know, patches go wrong, you get these series of things that just kind of when you chain them together, you've sort of in theory done not the, you know, all the right things, but you know, directionally, everything's been good and then it goes wrong. But that a CISO is much more valuable if they've been through a breach rather than not. What, what do you think of, <laughs> of that? It was, I think, almost like truer words have never been spoken. Like, yeah. yep. it's absolute mad. It's absolute beyond madness to see some of the things I've sort of heard about or seen. Uh, you know, I, uh, I mean, I can't divulge names. I've seen people yep. like just, just gone. And they are absolute guns, and it's because yep. like sometimes, and it's 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 just horrific to me. Sometimes they've known what to do, mm. they've explained what to do, and they've told them what to do, and they've been told, "No, we're not going to do it that way." Sorry. So someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about has made a decision that this person who does know what they're talking about is wrong, and then the attack happens or something bad happens, and then the person who actually has been trying their hardest to actually make a change is the one that gets you know well why don't you tell us about that and you'll go well i did well you didn't tell us well enough or you didn't that your slides weren't your slides weren't slides weren't good enough your slides weren't good enough your slides you know your email language was you know you didn't tell us what it really was you told me that it might happen you didn't tell me it would happen you know it's like this crazy this craziness um i think that you know being through some stuff you know myself like at my job where we've actually had to deal with different scenarios it gives you that um it gives you like uh, a really good basis of how to understand it and what tactics to play, um, who to go get help. You've got established relationships. Mm. When when a, you know get rid of the size, I bring a new size. I win. It doesn't mean the new size is not good. I'm not definitely not saying that. Um, but what ended up happening is even if they're the best in the world, they've got to establish they've got to establish um, relationships. They've got to understand the architecture and the landscape, the politics potentially, the mm. budget constraints. Um, they've got to understand they might be coming into a team that, you know, was really aligned with the previous CISO or the previous security manager. Therefore, like, they've got a hostile team, a hostile environment. You know, it's a, it's just unless the person, ha- if the person has other performance or it's actually really is a um, malpractice, I don't, I don't know the right yeah. in cybersecurity. Kind of negligence or something, yeah. Negligence, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, then I'm, I'm thinking that, for me, I would, I would be more inclined to keep them, and I'd, I'd say that at most manager like levels, unless it's a, you know, a lot of the time it's going to be a cultural issue that happens rather than now. I think that's what we talked about at the start around developing the culture. This is what that's what you're talking about. There is the cybersecurity culture. It's not a blame game. As yep. soon as it becomes a blame game, then you're kind of lost because you can't cover every angle. It's almost like inevitable that you're going to have some some attack. I mean, it's not almost inevitable. It's, it is actually inevitable. You know, like when I talk to you, like, you know, when I was thinking about whether I should actually talk to you on this podcast, I'm like, do I want to talk to you on a podcast and like have some hacker somewhere decide that I'm a really good target? I'm like, that's how I was literally thinking. Like, you know, there's smart people out there really yeah. trying hard to get your stuff and there's no, I'm under no, no, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the right word where no illusion that mm. these guys don't have tools. These guys aren't smart. These guys aren't organized. They're, they know what they're doing. They're probably, you know, there's probably a bunch of them listening to this podcast right now, you know, that uh, just like going, this is great stuff. I wish I, yeah, so this is what we've got to do. So if we've got to deep fake this guy's voice and call the CEO and ask him for something, you know, so it's just this really, um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. But for the greater good, I think we've got to talk about this stuff so people we do. have a better better chance, you know. It's a real... Yeah, I can't... I can't like, I, I, what you just said there, you know, we've got to talk about this today. I mean, clearly I enjoy these conversations, but, uh, you know, the, the point of this is the value to the broader cybersecurity community. That's the only point of this podcast. And I think these conversations help... Uh, helps so much because let's be honest, the, the other side of the fence are doing exactly that on forums in the dark web and you know all, all the places that um, you know that those kind of conversations happen. Um, and yeah, on the, the CISOs getting canned. I mean, I think it's the only explanation I could ever really see is that it's a good PR move if you got to do it for you know for PR purposes. But I think you know from an overall security outcome perspective, like it's no bueno. That that, that might change. I think. Mm. 
I hope it does. They actually, I think if they actually did a PR perspective that we actually sticking with our size because of these reasons, like that yep. would actually probably be resonate better in the market. Okay, these guys actually give a shit. These guys know. These guys are actually switched on. They're going to actually have a better outcome than go. Oh yeah, we had an outcome. It's the. It's not always the. Um, it's also not always the size though that gets canned. It's sometimes the IT manager or the or the um the one I was the one that pops into my head was actually the IT manager. So he was the IT manager, not the IT security guy. So they got rid of the IT manager and kept the IT security guy. Because they, you know, and it's like that guy, I've met that guy. He's like switched on, like mm. no way that like he's, you know, so it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So I think that it could, if a smart group think about it, they, you know, they might actually go, okay, we're going to use this as a PR, but we're going to go the opposite way that we see that, yeah. you know, and it might, it might turn. Yeah, you you would hope so. Yeah, you definitely hope so. We're we're pushing time here, but um, yeah, I'm keen to kind of get on to the next principle that you had. If uh, assuming you can continue talking, um, I'm yeah, hoping yeah, you go. can. Yep. Um, uh, which is being balanced. Um, and I'm actually going to quote you on this one. Um, there's the quote is there's still an us and them mentality in many firms, and if you don't walk this tightrope carefully, you'll find that people work around you rather than with you. And we we've sort of talked about this uh, a little bit already, but. You know what I think as many cybersecurity leaders, they talk about the people and the politics of the job. And what I'm keen to get to is like how you've seen people successfully walk that line between them and us. And the the nuance maybe with this question is how to do it and then push that urgency that you've talked about, you know, the burning platform, what might be an, an aggressive agenda, you know, that 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 tie rope just seems like so difficult to walk. Yeah, so I actually got a person. There's a there's a guy in the industry called Peter McQuaid. Um, he used to be the size of a company I worked at. Um, I'm just laughing because like uh, one time he he got his one chance to present to the board, and what he did is he got all their passwords. Like so he hacked all their passwords, and he just put a slide up on the in the boardroom um, of everyone in the room's password. That's so you, they just looked. He goes, "I want a slide. I want to show." He's trying to get to a point where he was upgrading the SOE to a different version of Windows and the, the version of Windows that had was known you could break the passwords really quite easily. And so he just had this slide up there that said, um, you know, all the board members, it didn't say whose passwords they were, but he says, I've just got one slide I want to show you today. And he put up this slide um, of all their passwords, everyone in the room's password on the screen. And everyone's just like realized exactly what's happening like then they had some stupid passwords like homer simpson 11 you know like <laughs> and like everyone just sat there for a few seconds and then they're looking at the screen not realizing then they've sort of realized that their password's up there but they've all had the same realization at the same time i wasn't there for that meeting because i was like i was just a network guy but he came back down tell me yet yeah, we're up he comes back down to me and he goes he sat next to me he goes yeah we're upgrading it's all good. <laughs> i think i go how'd you go and he goes I might not have a job tomorrow, but we're upgrading. <laughs> so he got like basically up Brilliant. to leave the room. Um, so I think that's probably he was trying to, he'd been asking to try to get to get that for a long time, um, for you know, maybe six months to a year. And that he went, Well, I'm sick of this, I'm just gonna try a stunt. So I think, you know, I guess that's maybe the example of what going over the top rope, but still getting the outcome. He was still there for years after that. So he was like really well respected. And there was many, many times where, you know, he would go out of his way. He was the go-to guy if there was any sort of like internal cyber espionage because, you know, partnerships, people leave, want to take clients and all that mm. sort of stuff. So he built up a reputation over a long period of time. So I think that's, that's I guess, what I mean. So when needed, he's willing to push, you know, really push the boundaries of like what's socially acceptable. Um, but then on the other side, he's really approachable and he was able to like um, be really value add in like 100% of the situations he's, he's, he's presented with. And he definitely wasn't a no person. So it was almost like a, no, we can't do that, but let me have a think about it and I'll come back to you. Or here's an approach we could take instead. Or here's another way we could do it. Or come back and say, look, we can't fix it in this instance because we, historically we don't have the data, but this is what we could do going forward if you want to have that data for next time so i think yeah you've got to push hard mm. um but you've also got to be realistic and 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 you know i think that you've got to be on their side and so it's not an us versus them but sometimes you've got to be you know funny witty um yeah. out there and really challenging the status quo 
Um, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning his name. But yeah, well, and what he did. We, we can bleep, bleep, we can bleep it out if we need to. No, I, I think you'll be fine. Yeah. Um, I remember. I actually remember that that time, and I actually haven't done that particular one, but definitely, um, I've you know gone to a meeting with a, a story about a partner that's done X, and they haven't named them, but I've actually gone and got permission from that partner. And said, you know, hey, do you mind if we use this story? It's a really good mm. lesson. He goes, and, you know, they normally go, yeah, that's okay. And then I've put that up. And then what's happened is that's really connected with that group of people because they could see how easily it could happen to them. Yep. Yeah, making it kind of uh, human, I suppose. Um, the the next principle then, and I'm just sort of conscious of time at this stage, but um, it's you know, be a coach, uh, which kind of almost starts to bring us full circle back to the bowling days where <laughs> you were – uh, coaching people how to bowl uh, without being a bowler. But in the article, you're contrasting the, uh, I think this is such an important point, but you contrast the difference in outcomes when uh, cultural change gets kind of pushed forward or catalyzed by positive rewards uh, and feedback rather than the kind of negative consequences or fear-based approaches. And yeah. good to, you know, kind of talk talk to that a little bit. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, I believe in this 100%. I think if you actually try to push back and, you know, don't take consideration egos and stakeholders and all these mm. other things. You can be in a situation where you put the a worse the firm in a worse situation. Um, going back to Gavin, who was here, he, he did a really good job of setting up this whole, um, you know, coaching mentality, and that's carried on through the team that's in my, the cyber team, which is a, a guy called Peter and a guy called Ben. Um, and you know, they they go really hard to sort of like explain, go out of their way to explain and and help. And also when someone does something good, um, you know, they really sort of double down on that kudos. A great example for that is, you know, we had, I mean, obviously our CFO gets attacked all the time, mm. um, trying to get them to change money. And, you know, some of the stuff gets through or gets through via someone else. It's not even actually uh, her getting attacked. It's someone else getting attacked with someone pretending to be her, you know, it's actually quite a, quite a challenging scenario. Um, But she's really awesome at um, picking up, picking up those attacks. And she's like, you know, this isn't a challenge for everyone out there to see if they can trick my CFO, but she's really good at, good at that. And so when, you know, when we present back up to the, you know, to the board or, or someone, I might use one of the stories exactly when she's actually worked out and and show that email. So the board will go, holy shit, I might've fallen for that. And you know, yep. and that then that CFO is actually elevated in the board's eyes as someone who really cares about cyber. And then she doubles down on that, and she actually does really care. She does already really care, but she realizes that she can get positive recognition at the right level, and then she does it more. But it's because we're giving the kudos, we're recognizing the good behavior, not just penalizing the bad behavior, not bad behavior, but the you know, mistakes. Yep. Um, so that's actually something that I think it really does make a difference. Um, I've said be a coach there. So that's like the training's got to be funny. The training's got to be short and engaging. Um, when you're helping, you, you've got to not be saying, no, we can't do that. It's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. This is the risk tolerance. What's your risk tolerance? Okay, because everything's kind of got a risk in some mm. ways. Nothing's yep. perfect. And so we'll like, we, we crafted a solution a few months ago where – we actually identified what the risks were and we put mitigations around those, but we got the partner and the client to agree that they were, they were acceptable risks. We just didn't yep. assume. But what that did is that elevated them the thought process of what they should be thinking about next time. So next time we may not necessarily need to be there and that partner will be thinking, oh, hang on a sec, this might be an authentication issue or an encryption mm-hmm. issue or a, you know, or a, private, a data privacy issue. So really going through that process and actually using every opportunity or an interaction to sort of like explain. And I don't mean like, um, you know, explain down. I mean, you know, here's your solution. It's really good. And these are the things we've considered and these are the mitigations we've got for you. Are you comfortable? Uh, we think that we're, we're nine out of 10 comfortable here. Like, what, do you, what do you think? So that way they can go, okay, right. I'm, I'm, I think this is okay. Um, and to sometimes we've even gone down the path of going to the client cybersecurity team and checking with them if they think that, you know, and all getting agreed. And the, to be honest, the clients, we don't usually deal with the cybersecurity team, but the, the person that we would deal with typically would be someone in, like a CFO at the client or someone like that. Mm-hmm. And they really, really, because it's, it's, 
it's fascinating. They've got the same challenge where they've got to keep themselves covered because they're responsible for stuff as well. So if their cybersecurity team and our cybersecurity are agreeing that their risk is, you know, there and what it is, so it's a tangible risk, but it's acceptable in this scenario, yep. then that gives them um, comfort that they've actually done the right process internally at the client as well. So and it just it, so it's really bringing them on the journey and getting them to understand and using every single one of those interactions to reinforce the principles and um you know, almost going back to the burning platform, isn't it? Mm. Understanding yeah. why you're doing it. And and it's a, a thing you do, not a point in time, is probably the big thing I'm getting from this conversation. Like it, it's it's small incremental changes day by day by day by day by day is the thing that gets you to the, you know, that sort of successful place. Um, yeah, we're, we're very much pushing it on time here, but I'm keen in the spirit of kind of closure to get to the last kind of principle. And, and you talk about being transparent, which, you know, we've, we've actually touched upon um, throughout the conversation, and you know, you mentioned um, some of the kind of metrics and uh, stories that you've used to kind of bring uh, leadership along that journal uh, journey. Any kind of last thoughts on that as we kind of finish out here? This is the, the last question, I promise. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm actually I'm actually pretty grateful to even have a chance to talk because I think it's some of this stuff other people are going to be going through and like don't know where to get started or don't know what how far to go um, or. Uh, it's really hard because, you know, when you're talking to a board, there's a level of um, how much transparency you want to give them. And, like, it's all you also, you can, you can never lie and you can never withhold information, but you can't give everything because it can be overwhelming yep. and it can, it can cause unnecessary stress. Um, you know, there, in cyber, um, you know, it's constant stress anyway, um, you know. So I think it's really important that, you know, you, t- you you have to come up with your own, in your own culture, in your own firm, how much transparency you can actually give. But when I mean transparency, what, what I've seen in the past is someone has maybe optimistically used it, use something. Um, they'll use something that, you know, they'll be, say, 10 data points. Nine data points are, r- are rubbish, making it's really bad. Mm. But one data point is actually pretty good. So they'll choose that one data point that's pretty good and actually share that. And everyone will be slapping each other on the back. And I'm like, guys, this is crazy. Like yeah. you're actually you're sort of having creating a warped perspective of it. So I think I, when I think about transparency, I think in making sure that the people you're dealing with have an honest perspective, um, not too warped in the positive or the negative, and then balancing that that out is. I think the, the 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 key stuff there is if you've been attacked, you've got to make sure you you know for the, the greater good of the community, you've got to be transparent with that. You've got to tell clients, you, you know, a lot of a lot of people I you know not a lot of people I know now, but I've heard sort of horror stories where kind of companies you know everyone's read it like companies kind of knew something was wrong but sort of didn't do anything about it for a while and it became progressively worse. Um, you know, so it's just you got to get on top of it straight away. I've actually got an absolutely awesome risk manager in our firm. Her name's Joe. So we have open communications, nothing's secret, nothing about work that is, you know, nothing secret, um, completely aligned, no politics, straight straight talking. So I think that's definitely, and then like at the, mer- not at the mercy, but almost at the mercy, okay, what do you think we should do? Um, and then when I'm dealing with the board, being transparent with data, and I think that going back to that data story is really important. Having that data over time um, gives people a flavour of where you are, and that can be rolled up to be transparent, but at the same time, um, not give too much detail to give un- unnecessary, you know, worry. Uh, I think the roadmap is pretty important, and the budget. I, if I was honest with you, I think that one of the best things we did was we we benchmarked our cybersecurity investment um, mm. and we did that against Gartner so we got the percentage of revenue for IT and then the percentage of cyber for revenue and a percentage of cyber for IT and mm. Gartner have the benchmarks for that across the industries and we can actually then go say okay are we actually doing enough um, where do we fit with that and that's that's something that you know is good for transparency I guess that you know, we then share that with the board. So when they go, you're doing enough, or this is what our budget is. This is how much we spend. This is what we're doing. So not hiding things. Um, yeah, it's a real tough one because I'm sort of conflicted because you can get yourself into a lot of problems if you're, you can't not be transparent. You have to be honest and you can't hide things. 
Yep. But if you talk too much, that's probably the best way to say it. If you talk too much, then you create unnecessary worry and, and, and panic and stress and you end up focusing potentially on the wrong things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You'd totally. be, be focused on reporting instead of, you know, <laughs> yeah. logging. Instead, of, yeah, actually it's sort of doing yeah, doing the work. It's all about the, uh, I think we said it earlier on the, in the uh, conversation around the, you know, the amazing presentation um, or your, sorry, your presentation wasn't good enough. Was that, is that what we said? Yeah. Yep. Um, Andrew, really, really have enjoyed this conversation. Um, so massive thank you for, for coming on and um, being so transparent, you know, in the, in the spirit of uh, the principles. Um, phenomenal article, by the way. We'll include that in the, um, the show notes for the episode. So thank you for both the article and obviously then spending the time with us today. Um, yeah, very, very much appreciated it. No, I appreciate the opportunity. And it was nice talking to you. Likewise. Thanks so much to Andrew for joining us and for his great take on positive cybersecurity culture. As always, thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. Jump into our back catalogue of episodes and like, subscribe, and please do leave us a review. For now, stay safe, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.